Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 55, Halftime. of sport halftime the 20 minute show on the off weeks of interviews where i discuss topics such as professionalism entrepreneurship business and other topics to help you and your careers so that you can apply it to the sports industry brands what are they i'm not sure many that use the word brand or branding really comprehend exactly what a brand is I honestly feel like the term is overused, specifically in sports media. How often have you heard someone say, quote, brand of football, or they have a great brand? What exactly does a brand of football mean? One of my biggest pet peeves is seeing a creative shop or even a freelancer saying that they do branding, and all they really do is create logos. I've also had marketers before tell me and my colleagues, quote, let's get some branding on it, end quote, while referencing a project. It was sort of their way of saying, please put the logo on there and make it bigger. To understand branding, first we have to look at what the origin of branding is before drawing conclusions on what a brand is and isn't. The American Marketing Association defines a brand as, quote, a name, term, design, symbol, or any other feature that identifies one seller's goods or service as distinct from those of other sellers. The legal term for a brand is trademark. A brand might identify one item, a family of items, or all items of that seller. If used for the firm as a whole, the preferred term is trade name, end quote. Now that's a generic and basic definition of what a brand is in terms of marketing. But in actuality and in context of brands in today's world, it goes much deeper than that. Oftentimes a brand is a feeling. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, defines a brand as, quote, what people say about you when you're not in the room, end quote. So from that, you can see that a brand can be much more than a product or a visual item. The late Wally Olins was one of the godfathers of branding, specifically as it relates to business. He was one of the co-founders of the world-renowned branding firm, Wolf Olins, who defines brands as, quote, a set of ideas a company or product stands for in people's minds, shaped by that company or product's actions and recognized through a visual and verbal style, end quote. Historically, brands were a way to mark ownership of property. Think about it in cattle and ranch context. A rancher would brand his cattle, Basically, these watermarks, signatures, stamps, or burned images were used to tell others that this particular item is theirs. 
Then as time progressed and people began to contribute economically by creating services and products and businesses, brands were a way of making a promise to customers of quality so that they could recognize and continue to purchase services or products from that particular supplier. People began to not only stamp recognizable marks on their property, but on their products as well. In the early days, perhaps products and foods were potentially sketchy as they didn't have consistent packaging and really anybody and everybody could bring them to market. But to put a brand on something, it it meant something. There was something consistent about it. If you purchased the product and or service and had a good experience with it, that experience allowed you to trust in that product and service. Hence, when you needed it again, you would purchase from the same place because you knew and you hoped that they would deliver the same experience that you had last time. And you trusted that they would provide that quality experience over and over again from the same people or as growth ensued from the same company. But what stopped others from stealing the visuals and pretending to be a company that was having success? Well, in the 1870s, registered trademarks were created as a way to protect these company assets. Some of the earliest trademarks from a consumer brand perspective are actually still around today in our grocery stores, one being Kellogg's and another being Bass Beer. So now that we historically know where brands come from, back to the modern era, Basically, what we can determine is that a brand is not only a visual asset, such as a logo, but how a company, organization, product, uh, or team makes people feel. And that feeling is influenced by the company or organization's actions. In other words, is a company doing things that make people feel like they can trust them? Are they consistent? Are they trustworthy? What do you think about from a brand perspective when I mention Apple? How about Nike or Target? Now, what do you think about when I mention Dell, Monsanto, or Facebook? Do you immediately consider whether you can trust one of these companies? Have their actions led to whether you can trust them? Or have they had, have you had quality and and consistent experiences with them, which led to current and potentially future trust? Now let's take all of this and put it into the context of sports. Wins, traditions, coaching personalities, team personalities, facilities, and viewing access are all things that affect brands from the sports sense. In the case of college athletics, there are actually many brands within one athletic department. You have the brand of the entire athletic department, which acts as sort of an umbrella brand, And that is where the visual identity is influenced, created, and policed. That visual identity is shared by all sports within the athletic department and typically remains unmodified. From a personnel perspective, perhaps the athletic department has gained trust in the fan base and in future recruits for delivering on a promise of great facilities, quality resources, alumni donations, or just a track record of success in regards to former athletes in all of their sports, personnel, and their their hires. Yet we can even delve deeper into an athletic department to see that not only do you have the overarching umbrella brand, but you have 
the individual teams with their own brands, each with their own personalities, specifically coaching personalities. Now, sometimes these are referred to as the program, the football program, the baseball program. Now, this is the most consistent thing, the culmination of many years of history, or possibly in some cases, no history at all, if a particular program is brand new. Regardless, some of these programs may be more successful than others. For example, we often hear the terms football school or basketball school, in which case most likely the football or basketball program is the most valuable brand in the entire athletic department due in part to wins, success on and off the field, maybe merchandise sales, revenue, fan appreciation, and especially casual viewer recognition. Sometimes, however, the revenue doesn't matter in regards to if a school is a football school or a basketball school. Now, I'll take, for example, my own beloved Kentucky Wildcats, and I know you guys are probably tired of hearing them used as an example, but hey, you know, I can't, I can't change who, uh, who I grew up loving. Anyhow, from a revenue perspective, one could argue that Kentucky is a football school. The football program dwarfs all other athletic programs in revenue, mostly in part to their relationship with the Southeastern Conference, which in regards to its own brand is known as a football conference. The SEC has become synonymous and, and almost annoying for many other fans of schools and other conferences for cheering for their entire conference. You hear the SEC chants and that type of thing. Um, and, and, you know, instead they, they, people in the SEC tend to cheer for their conferences instead of hate their conference rivals when they happen to make it on the national stage. They may still hate them, but they'll cheer for them to win. Now, from a business perspective, it does actually make complete sense to root for the entire conference because if one of your conference teams wins the national championship, millions of television and sponsorship dollars are split amongst conference schools. That is why conferences are so important in college sports. But back to the University of Kentucky, as many of you that pay attention to college sports know, the men's basketball program is actually much more successful than any other sport at the school. But because football is such a large entity revenue-wise, it does not come close to football in terms of its revenue. Yet it is still known as a basketball school. You could argue that the value of Kentucky basketball is more than than Kentucky football. And it doesn't necessarily have to be tangible things like money in terms of determining value. And that's an interesting scenario that makes the argument that money in college sports doesn't really influence a brand as much as maybe other industries like consumer products. Now, staying in the same vein as it regards to each sport having its own brand within an athletic department, each team itself has a brand. Most often, the team's brand is reflective on the coaching staff's personality, but sometimes the personnel on the team can influence it as well. In the professional sports sense, think about the Detroit Pistons bad boys of the 80s or just the New York, the New York Yankees and their players and different, different personnel over the years. Now, in Kentucky's case, the reason why fans are so passionate about Kentucky basketball even though hardly any players on the team are from the state of Kentucky itself, is mainly because many years ago, fans took a liking, a liking to Kentucky hoops because of 
former coaches Adolph Rupp, Joby Hall, and even Rick Pitino, who would go into the mountains and the rural areas and the cities of the state and pick up players from the local high schools. Uh, the coal miners, farmers, and small-town folks who struggled in daily life had someone, their local player, maybe it was a co-worker's or a family member's son, to cheer on and put on a pedestal. Then, of course, because of the team nature of sports, the state school uh, where the, the local player would go, Kentucky, now represented not only their local hero, but the entire team, and then also them as well. Fans saw it as a way to sort of beat the hillbilly stereotype. In other words, the world may be better than them in most aspects of life, but basketball is where they saw themselves as put, having equal footing or in some case, uh, a higher ground footing. In today's John Calipari era, though, an era in which the Kentucky basketball teams have become much more known for sort of a big city swagger. If you think about John Wall dancing before games or Anthony Davis blocking shots and pointing to the crowd, uh, it doesn't necessarily have that whole small town blue collar attitude anymore. So why have fans remained so loyal, even though that one could argue that the brand and the feeling of Kentucky basketball has changed? This is where brand equity comes into play. When people begin to trust something or someone, they put an inherent value in that thing. That thing sort of becomes ingrained in them. It, comes, it becomes a part of them. It becomes something that they deeply care about. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when trust is built over time, people will, re will return to the thing that has given them quality experiences based on their history with that thing. Those experiences will remain quality for future years to come. At least that's what we assume when we put our trust in a brand. Just as consumer brands can influence people through perception, almost at a subconscious level, so too can sports brands. For example, ESPN's Heather Dennich recently wrote an article about brands and the college football playoff and the polls. In it, she discusses how brand name can influence the committee or voters in regards to putting a team in the playoffs. For example, if a choice comes down to an Ohio State or Utah, it is almost easier for people to think about the long-term brand of Ohio State football and put weight on that choice. Oklahoma coach Bob Stoops is even quoted in the article saying, quote, brand recognition usually matters. If all things are equal, sometimes you go with what is most familiar or what you know, end quote. Is choosing the college football playoff participants this way right? Probably not. But this is why branding and marketing are so important when it comes to sports. Those of you that listen to this podcast know that most of my knowledge, passion, and focus is on sports in the U.S. However, as someone that is not privy to rugby, I am well aware of the New Zealand All Blacks. The fact that someone not privy to the sport knows about the team means that they have a pretty good brand. Having a brand that not only your fans love, but is recognizable to non-fans or casual fans of a sport is just as important. And as it regards to the All Blacks brand, I know that it is a brand that intimidates opponents, 
partly because of their pregame ritual known as the Haka, an ancestral war cry dance of the people of New Zealand. Now, off the top of my head, I don't even know what the All Blacks logo looks like, but I do know that they have a reputation of being a strong, mean-looking, aggressive, athletic team wearing black uniforms. This is where one could argue that color is perhaps the most important thing when it comes to a visual identity, even more so than possibly the logo itself. A colleague of mine uh, was the managing director of Ogilvy Worldwide, which is an international advertising agency. And for those of you Mad Men fans, it was uh, mentioned quite a bit and made a lot of cameos on the, uh, on the website or on, the, on that show. Anyhow, this colleague worked on the Dove Real Beauty campaigns, uh, and he once told me over lunch that a brand is a name, a color, and a personality. And this particular gentleman made a name for himself in the niche of beauty products, and he actually consults today worldwide in that niche around the globe. He's constantly on an airplane to Brazil and Europe and all these other places, while he actually, funny enough, lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, but anyhow, it should be noted that this gentleman does not actually provide logo design services at all, yet he refers to himself as a brand consultant. In some instances, perhaps having a brand is having no brand at all. For example, what is the brand of Oregon football? On the field, it's definitely fast-paced, high-scoring style of play. But as far as what they wear... It almost has no brand. There isn't really a consistency. Through its partnership with Nike, Oregon changes its uniforms every single game, sometimes significantly. As a diehard Oregon supporter and alumnus, Nike co-founder Phil Knight wanted to put his alma mater on the map, so to speak, in the college football game, but it didn't really have a history in the sport in regards to wins and tradition. So they sort of became the anti-brand. Now they could come up with whatever gimmicks they wanted from a visual perspective and, and really play into recruits' growing interest in things like on-field uniforms and merchandise. And in all honesty, one could argue that they really spearheaded the general public's interest in uniforms. This obviously has turned rural Oregon into a national football powerhouse, being able to pull recruits from all over the country. In closing, what does this all really mean for us? Those of us who are the creative people working in sports. Well, for one, it means that we shouldn't just create and critique logos for subjective reasons. It also means that just because you don't create brand identities, it doesn't mean that you aren't creating brands. For example, creating a poster campaign, social media campaign, and overall visual language for a team season is just as much as creating a brand as an identity designer creating a visual identity for an organization. In that instance, you are creating the brand's visual assets and a consistent style for that team in that particular season. As you continue to grow as a creative person, I recommend studying the work of Wally Olins mentioned earlier, his philosophies and his methods. 
as well as studying some of the timeless consumer brands like Coca-Cola and Harley-Davidson. Look at how even though they may change things visually over time, from a bird's eye view, they remain consistent aesthetically and deliver their message of trust through visual and strategic methods. If you're interested in diving deep into brands and sport, then look at more than just the execution of logos from an illustrative or typographic standpoint, but really understand why decisions were made and how they tie in strategically to a team's history or the message they're trying to get across. Oftentimes we see teams that haven't had success rebrand because they're trying to gain excitement in fans. It's something new. We're leaving the past in the past. We're not wanting to tie into that history. If you have any questions or comments for me on this topic or have suggestions for any other topics you'd like for me to discuss in these halftime episodes, then feel free to email me at info at makersofsport.com. And speaking of email, please be sure to sign up for the newsletter where I send out a weekly email called Weekend Reads. The newsletter includes interesting articles, sports design or technology news, sports entrepreneurship, links I personally find inspiring, or most of the time I even write my own articles that are a little bit similar to these halftime episodes, but more specific for that email list. You can sign up and support the podcast by doing that if you go to makersofsport.com slash email. On next week's episode, I'll be heading to Starkville, Mississippi to interview Ashley Strauss, the Director of Creative Services for Mississippi State Athletics. Speaking of brands, Ashley has done a great job of establishing a consistent design language and style for all of the Mississippi State athletic teams' visuals for this year. It's a great strategy for tying in all programs to one overarching athletic department. Anyhow, while there, I'll be touring the facilities of Mississippi State, enjoying some Lil Dewey's barbecue, and watching my beloved Kentucky take on the Mississippi State Bulldogs for an SEC East versus West rivalry game in Davis Wade Stadium. I'm actually thinking of periscoping some of the tour and and maybe the interview, and possibly just to kind of give you a day-to-day of the life of an in-house creative at a Power 5 athletic program. So we'll see what we come up with there, but definitely try to think of something different. As always, please like, rate, and write reviews of the show on iTunes. You can get there by going to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Here's a review written recently by the user Anticubicle. This user writes, As a diehard sports fan and senior-level graphic designer that has worked in the sports industry, I was extremely happy to find Adam's podcast. Adam gives invaluable advice and encouragement that even as a designer with 16 years of experience, I find incredibly helpful in my day-to-day work life. I especially enjoy the halftime episodes since they give a break from the interview format, which I also enjoy. While the name states that this podcast is for designers working in the sports industry, the content can often be applied or related to any industry of design, not just sports. As another listener said in an earlier review, the show is advertisement and sponsorship free, which is something I both appreciate and enjoy. Thanks for all you do, Adam.
Many thanks, Anti-Cubicle. I love the username as I'm totally Anti-Cubicle as well, if you can't tell. And actually, I think I know who you are, but because of your username, I'm not sure if you want it it to be read over the air. Uh, Anyhow, I really appreciate the kind review, and I'm happy to know a senior-level creative such as as yourself is enjoying the show and gaining value both from the interview and halftime episodes. As for the rest of you, you heard the reviewer today. This content is free. There are no ads. There are no sponsorships, nor will there ever be. Podcasts that have sponsorships and websites that have ads, they're not truly free. You are the product. You use Facebook for free because Facebook sells you to marketers. In podcasts, they sell your ears to sponsors. This show is legitimately free. I'm not selling you to anything, to anybody. The only way that it will stay free is if you can help get the show recognized by sharing it on social media and heading over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes and leaving a review. If you do that for me, I'll be sure to read my favorites on the air of these halftime episodes as I have been. If you don't have an iTunes account, be sure to share, like, and write reviews of the show on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever it's convenient for you to listen to the podcast. Lastly, follow me, ask questions, or say hello on Twitter, and be sure to like the Facebook page, facebook.com slash makersofsport. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.